Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Well, this morning, as we examine God's Word, we're going to discover that the Bible is an advantage only when we conform our lives to His Word rather than conform His Word to our lives. And then we're going to be going into Romans chapter 3. I got through... Uh, chapters 1 and 2 last year, so even though I didn't have as many Sundays as pastor, I am going a little bit faster, so maybe he'll get to Philippians 3 in a couple years. I don't know. We'll see. Love you, pastor. But the Bible is an advantage only when we conform our lives to his word rather than conform his word to our lives. And many of us know this as we're not stretching the word to fit into our own lifestyle. So this morning we're going to return to the book of Romans and hopefully you remember chapters 1 and chapter 2. But if you don't, we're going to go ahead and look back at the first two chapters just for a second because it's been a little while and it's probably a good idea to kind of briefly summarize the first two chapters of the book. So Paul began in chapter 1 by introducing the gospel and then he proceeded to show why the gospel was needed. And at the end of chapter 1, he primarily addresses the Gentiles and he argues that even though they have no excuse for their rejection of God because of his nature and character is revealed in his creation. His audience, which likely consisted primarily of Jewish Christians, certainly had no problem with that. But then you go into chapter 2, And Paul lays out his case that the Jews are also equally in need of the gospel because God is more concerned with their hearts than the outward signs of their religion. And their hearts were no more righteous than those of the Gentiles. So as we come into chapter 3, Paul is going to address some of the objections he expects from his audience by using a teaching method known as a diatribe, which is basically a series of questions and answers with an imaginary opponent, kind of like playing devil's advocate, so to speak. So if you haven't seen it already or haven't read it before, uh, you need to take some time to read this important passage before and after this morning, because if you have, you may have had a hard time following what Paul's line of thinking was here. And believe me, If you have trouble understanding chapter 3, you're in good company because a lot of us still don't have a clue exactly what he's saying here, but we're going to try to extrapolate it a little bit this morning. Well, Paul's logic here, and I think as I began to read some of the sermons and and commentaries in chapter 3, I kind of felt a little bit better because as I was going through confused, like, what am I going to preach on here? Other more learned than I had trouble extrapolating this as well. So, we've got our work cut out for us this morning, but I'm confident that we're up for the task. So, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 and follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. <coughs> Excuse me. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, 
To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judge. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Of course, he's speaking in the human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now, in this diatribe, Paul presents three objections that he expects his audience to raise in their minds, and then he answers each one of those objections. And if we keep that structure in mind, it will help us understand and apply this difficult passage. So, let's start with objection number one, which is in verse one. There is no advantage in being God's chosen people. Again, this is kind of a conflict that's going to be raised by uh, intelligent individuals who are asking about, why do I serve God? There is no advantage in being God's chosen people. Well, Paul had just finished making the case that the Jews are just as much in need of the gospel as the Gentiles because they too have rebelled against God in their hearts, even if they do look religious on the outside. So Paul is addressing here the first objection he would expect from these Jewish Christians. If that's the case, then is there any advantage at all in being a Jew and following the law when it comes to things like circumcision, which we talked about last time? Excuse me. Now, for me, I think that's a pretty legitimate question to ask. And today we might phrase this objection a little bit differently. If things like baptism and the Lord's Supper are being a member of a local church won't make me righteous before God or save me, then what is the advantage of participating in those things? So that, too, is certainly a legitimate question to ask. Well, Paul gives his response in verse 2. You have the advantage of God's word. Paul is going to resume his answer to this objection in chapter 9, verse 4. So we'll be there, what, four years from now? So remember this, okay? So chapter 9, verse 4, where he lists many other advantages that the Jews have as God's chosen people. But here he focuses on what he considers to be the greatest advantage of being a Jew. And that is being entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, (coughs) the word oracles described important sayings or messages, especially supernatural utterances. It is used four times in the New Testament. And in each instance, it is used as a synonym For the Bible to stress that the words in Scripture are actually utterances of God. Now, God had entrusted his word to the Jews and given them the responsibility of communicating his word to the world around them with their lips and their lives. 
But instead, they had used the scriptures as a basis for claiming privilege rather than focusing on the great responsibility that came with the blessing of being entrusted with God's word. And we see people do this on time to time. They'll take, text, they'll, they'll, they'll take the text out and they'll apply it as it applies to their situation. Well, you're not really getting the true meaning here because, again, you're conforming it to what you think it should mean and how it applies to yourself in that current situation. And that's what they did then too. So we need to keep that in mind as well. Certainly being a disciple of Jesus does benefit us personally, but being a disciple is more of a position of responsibility than a position of privilege. We are reminded of the words of Jesus in Luke uh, chapter 12. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So, the greatest advantage we have as disciples of Christ is that we have been entrusted with the Bible. Not just for our own personal benefit, but for the purpose of honoring and for the purpose of cherishing the Word of God. And, of course, unapologetically communicating that good news to a lost world around us. So, that's objection number one. It's it's not an advantage to be God's chosen people. That's not always true. Of course it's an advantage. We have the advantage of having God's word. Therefore, we can preach it to the nations. We can preach it to our neighbor. We can uh, witness to those who are in need to know Christ. Okay? That's the advantage. But of course, they were more focused on the privilege rather than the actual action that comes behind it. Objection number two in verse three. God gives up on his people when they sin. Now, this second objection kind of flows from the first one. In essence, this objection goes something like this. <clears throat> Paul, let's just suppose for a moment that you're right and that all of us Jews are sinners. Doesn't that mean that God is going to renege on all his promises and to us as a people? After all, God made a deal with us, and if you're right, we didn't keep our end of the deal, so doesn't that mean that God won't keep his either? Is that a legitimate question? I think it was for them, of course. And a lot of times, we as sinners, we think of that too. Well, my sin is too great to be forgiven. You know, I, I broke my covenant with God, so what's stopping him from breaking his covenant with me? Now, today we see that same objection just in a slightly different form. It might go something like this. You're absolutely right. I am a sinner. In fact, I'm such a horrible sinner and the things that I have done are so terrible that God couldn't possibly forgive me. I've offended him to such a degree that I'm sure God has given up on me. Paul responds to this in verse 4. There is nothing you can do that will cause God to give up on you. you. There is nothing that we can do that will cause God to give up on us. Now this is the first of several places Paul is going to use the phrase, by no means. 
this is one of those phrases that is almost impossible to translate into English because it consists of a strong negative uh, construction in Greek that conveys the idea of impossibility. And even that statement I just told you, you're probably going, okay, pastor, sure, because you don't understand. It's very difficult to translate. But Paul is emphatic here that it is impossible for the faithlessness of man to somehow nullify the faithfulness of God. And all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God had made a promise to bless Israel as a nation, a promise that was not conditional and which uh, rested solely on God's character of being 100% faithful. And even though over the years every single individual that had been a part of Israel had been unfaithful to God in some way, that did not negate God's promise to the nation as a whole. Paul quotes from Psalm 51 to prove his point. Psalm 51 was written by David after his sin with Bathsheba. And in that verse, Paul is quoting, David is acknowledging that what happened to him was a demonstration of God's justice. So he kind of turned that sin and kind of flipped it to the positive side there. Even though David knew what he did was wrong. But he also pointed out that even though I did this horrible thing, God did not give up on him. God was there to forgive him. He was ready to move on from that sin and not focus on it so that it drug him down to not follow the ways of God. So, it is clear that all the sins of the Jews, and there were many, could not cause God to break his promises. As, as Paul put it here, even if every man is a liar, God will be true to his word. God will always be true to his word. The same thing is true for each one of us personally. Our sins, though they may be many, cannot cause God to break his promises. There is nothing that you can do that will cause God to give up on you. God is always willing to forgive. But at the same time, not everyone automatically receives that forgiveness that God offers to all. Listen to this. While God made an unconditional promise to the nation of Israel as a people, he never promised that any individual Jew, no matter how pure his or her lineage is, they could not claim security in God's promises apart from personal repentance and faith, which is why it's important for us to not only worship corporately, but we need to be worshiping one-on-one. You need to have that personal relationship with God. So, while God is definitely willing and even anxious to forgive us, going to church regularly or being baptized or giving money or participating in the Lord's Supper or any other act of external uh, religiosity can never earn that forgiveness. It's only when we are willing to confess that sin without making any excuses for it and then to repent and place our faith in Jesus that we can actually experience that forgiveness. Objection number three, which is in verse five. If my sin reveals God's righteousness, then how can he judge me? If my sin reveals God's righteousness, then how 
Can he judge me? Now, this third objection is one that Paul is going to um, deal with again and again several times in his letter, but in slightly different forms. The argument goes something like this. Paul, you've really played right into our hands now. If David's sin gave God a chance to demonstrate his righteousness and mercy, then wasn't it a good thing that David sinned? And since David's sin was actually a good thing, then how could God judge him for it? And how can God judge us for our sin? Kind of tricky there, isn't it? Now, I know most of us immediately recognize this is convoluted thinking here. And in that argument, but I'm sure that we don't use the same kind of thinking in the church more than we would care to admit. Now, I'll address that in a moment, but when we talk about Paul's response's objection, which is in verses 6 through 8, he says, our judgment is just because we are twisting God's word. We know of individuals that twist scripture to fit into their lifestyle. We see it time and time again. So this third objection is kind of a slick argument, but it's also a sick argument. This objection accuses God of using sin for his advantage. But Paul makes it very clear in no uncertain terms that this kind of clever twisting of the scripture in order to make what is inherently evil appear good is to not be tolerated. It is to not be tolerated. Once again, he uses the phrase by no means to leave absolutely no doubt that this kind of thinking has no place in the life of a disciple of Jesus. Now in verses 1 through 4, which we'll get to, it it talks about the first three objections that we've seen this morning and and relatively straightforward, but when we get to verses 7 and 8, it's much more difficult to figure out how they fit into this passage. Well, this is actually a fourth objection, or this is the part of Paul's answer to the third objection that we're looking at right now. I think the key to making that determination is to look at the pronouns that Paul uses and employs as he goes through this argument. So in verses 1 through Paul, uh, one through 4, Paul speaks of Jews in the third person. He calls them Jews or uses the pronoun there, if you notice that. So the first two objections are presented in a way that are coming from the Jews as God's chosen people who have the advantage of having been entrusted with the oracles of God. Then in verses 5 through 6, Paul switches the first uh, first person plural to our, we, us. So it seems that Paul does that because he wants his readers to understand that he considers himself to be unrighteous and deserving of God's wrath, just as his fellow Jews. He doesn't want to go in any way, uh, imply that he's not, not in need of the gospel, because he is, and he knows this. And finally, in, in verse 7, he switches uh, the, the first person singular to my and I, to refer to his teaching and the personal condemnation he is experiencing from the skeptics in his audience as a result. See, Paul wasn't above this either. So he knew that as much as they needed the gospel, he needed the gospel as well. So even the us in verse 8 appears to refer only to Paul 
and some of his associates and not to the Jews as a whole. So he wasn't there to place blame. Paul's purpose here was to get them to understand what he wanted God, what God wanted them to understand. God presented this to Paul. And we all know that Paul was on an impossible task. He's going to places to preach about God, but he knew he was going to be rejected. So this is the reason why he approached it the way he did. But with those differences in mind, it becomes pretty clear that this is not a fourth separate objection here, but merely an extension of Paul's response to the third objection. So essentially here, what what I think Paul is saying in verses 7 and 8 is, you think that I'm teaching that we should do evil so that good may come, right? That's not what I'm teaching at all. But for the sake of argument, let's assume your accusation is true. So you're condemning me as a sinner because you claim I am lying to you, right? So doesn't my sin, as you've argued, serve to reveal God's righteousness and his mercy? And if that's the case, how can you think it's okay to judge me for my sin? But it's not okay for God to judge you for your sin. You see, Paul concludes this section with this statement. Their condemnation is just. The key question we must answer here is, who is there? Whose condemnation is just? Given the totality of this passage, I think the answer to that question becomes pretty clear. There, parentheses there, identifies those who have been twisting God's word to try to claim that they don't need the gospel. But I don't think it's a stretch to all to look at this kind of mindset in even broader terms here. That is why we began this morning with this overall principle. The Bible is an advantage only when we conform our lives to his word rather than conform his word to our lives. Now I'm convinced that this is Paul's main point here in presenting and refuting these objections. As disciples of Jesus, we do have a potential advantage over those who are not disciples because we have been entrusted with the word of God. And that means every single one of us sitting here today. We have been entrusted with the word of God. What we do with it is our gift to God. So, they had completely ignored the fact that as God's chosen people, they had been entrusted with the responsibility of proclaiming God's word to the surrounding nations through their lips and through their lives. Instead, they had twisted the scriptures to make them feel good about themselves. Have you done that before? I have. Not even knowing it. Not, really, not even realizing my situation. I go, I just go, you know, God, I need, I need a scripture right now and something that's going to make me feel better about my situation. And you open the Bible and you read something and you think, oh, yeah, that's it right there. But then you go through and you look through and you're like, hey, no, that's, that's not it at all, is it? Okay. We've all done it. They had twisted scriptures to fit their own idea of what it meant to be God's chosen people. And, you know, they needed to live their lives according to the version of this letter that Paul writes. Because the problem with it was they were missing the heart of the law. And as a result, they had turned the advantage of being entrusted with the oracles of God 
into a curse. And unfortunately, we see exactly the same thing in our world today. Those who claim to be Christians often twist the word of God to try and make it conform to the way they have decided they want to live. But in the long run, that doesn't work. Any better than me trying to stretch a hose that's too small to fit a larger pipe. But as I mentioned earlier, it's easier to fall into that trap than we might imagine. Although the list is far from exhaustive, let me, let me share a, a, a couple of ways here that we twist God's word to conform to our lives. Some of these are hypothetical, but some are actual things that I have observed within the church, even within my own life. And my goal here is not to make us feel guilty. Um, if you've done something similar, I promise there's a disclaimer underneath here that says, if this happened to you, it was just by coincidence. So, okay. But, again, my goal is not to make you feel guilty, but if you've done something similar, although if the Holy Spirit uses these examples to bring you to conviction, then, hey, that's on God, not me. I'm just the vessel, so. You can talk with Dave afterwards, okay? All right. All right. Here's an example for you. It says, I know the Bible teaches that we shouldn't live together before we get married, but we decided that it's okay because we'd rather find out we're incompatible before we get married and end up in a divorce because the sin of divorce would be worse than the sin of living together before we got married. You see the twisting of the truth there. All right, here's a second. I know that I don't have any biblical grounds for divorce, but I'm not happy in my marriage, so I'm going to get a divorce anyway because I know God will forgive me. There's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. I know it's wrong to not report all my income on my tax returns, but the Bible says that I'm worse than an unbeliever if I don't take care of my family and I can't afford to pay those extra taxes and still be able to take care of my family so that's the lesser sin. When I went out to the bar with some of my friends and got drunk, that was actually a good thing. Because now my friends know that I'm just like them, and it'll make it easier for me to share the gospel with them. Surprisingly, I've heard this more than once. <laughs> exactly. How does that work? That's a good question. There are almost limitless examples, and these are just a few. But I think you get the idea here. Unfortunately, we can get pretty creative in attempting to conform the Bible to fit our lives. But here are the few common ways we do that we need to guard against here. First, ranking the severity of sin. Several of the examples I just gave are based on this practice. We justify one particular sin by convincing ourselves that it's not as bad as some other sin, usually one that we don't tend to struggle with. Secondly, we ignore the parts of the Bible that we don't like. I know a lot of us do that. We ignore the parts of the Bible that we don't like. And it's actually pretty easy to do. We can just skip over the parts of the Bible that address whatever sin that we're trying to justify. In other words, 
I'm going to open my Bible and find a verse that's going to make me feel better about what I'm doing. But that's why it's so important to have a plan where we systematically read through the entire Bible. Reading into the Bible instead of drawing out from the Bible. And that there's even a tech, technical term for this, and it's eisegesis. What we do when we approach the Bible with some preconceived idea of what we want it today, and, and then try to force that meaning into the text. This is particularly a potential danger with topical preaching and teaching. It's very easy for a pastor to um, look at the climate of things and preach on that topic, but it doesn't, it doesn't gel with what the Holy Spirit is speaking to him to do or her to do. So it's important that we don't get caught up in that too. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit. We need to be led by God, not by ideas or external forces that are around us. And also, when applying the Bible to others, but not to myself. We tend to be really good at seeing how the Bible applies to the lives of others. But if we're honest, I think we're all guilty of reading a particular passage or message and immediately thinking of how that applies to someone else and completely missing what it reveals about your own life. Let me close here this morning with just a couple of comments. First, there is no such thing as a good sin. There is no such thing as a good sin. All sin is evil through and through. Your sin and my sin is so serious that God had to send his one and only son so that he could die on a cross for that sin. So we must never ever underestimate the seriousness of sin. And second, because of his grace, God is able to bring about good in spite of that sin. In spite of all that, God can bring good out of that. But the fact that God is able to do that is never a justification for that sin. And even when God does choose to bring good out of sin, that doesn't always mean he removes the consequences of that sin. The example of David certainly illustrates that point. And although David eventually repented of his immorality, immortality, <coughs> man, excuse me, with Bathsheba, and God extended his grace and forgiveness, the child conceived as a result of that sinful action still died. So we're never excused from the consequence of the sin. And in the long term, the nation of Israel ended up being split into two, largely as a result of their sin. So again, I will say this, the Bible is an advantage only when we conform our lives to his word and not conform his word to our lives. And although the application of this message is pretty simple, it's not easy. It's not easy. Here are three things I want us to encourage us in this morning in response to this. First, we need to commit to systematically read all of the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to go home and you're going to read it cover to cover tonight. It means you have a plan. You have an idea of what you're going to do. I mean, we have uh, stuff in the foyer that will help you go through the Bible in a year. We need to have a systematic plan. And there are all kinds of Bible reading plans. Um, 
and there's always ones that will be best suited for you. Uh, it really doesn't matter if you're on a plan where you read through the Bible in a year or whether you plan to go through it in four years. The main thing is to find a plan and stick to it, one that you can stick to. Second, we need to pray to God to help us conform our lives to the Bible. I found that if I pray and ask God to help me apply to what I'm going to learn from his word before I even read it, things tend to go a little better. And more likely that I'll approach his word with the mindset that I want it to illuminate my life and show me where I need to make changes and align uh, my life to what I'm reading. And finally, we need to pray that as a body, we'll encourage and help one another to conform our lives as a body and as individuals to the Word of God. So we need to all pray that this body would be a place where we can all grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ as we conform our lives to His Word. Again, application is simple, but it is not an easy process. We need to go to God in prayer. We need to stop using this as a weapon. This is a tool for us. Something that we need to take very seriously. Something that we need to recognize our sin as being very serious and allow God to conform ourselves to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you that you present yourself in ways that allow us to understand your precepts. God, we can't thank you enough for your forgiveness. We can't thank you enough for your mercy. Lord, we're all sinners. But you love us anyways and you never give up on us. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the covenant that you've made with us. Thank you that you're not like us and that we tend to break those covenants from time to time. Lord, guide us in our walk with you. Allow us to hear your words and allow us to conform to it and not conform it to us. Thank you for your son. Thank you that he died for us so that we could have everlasting life and to join you in glory when that time comes. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. David, you got a song for us? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, he does. Let's stand together. Hold on, hold on. Oh, hold no, on. No, 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 no. <laughs> as you're speaking this morning, I, I'm, Russell, would you put up great as thy faithfulness, please? We'll just do the one verse in a chorus. But I was thinking about chapter 3 when you were talking. It, God remains faithful no matter what. And you, you kept saying that. And, and I was just sitting there thanking God for his faithfulness. I know in my life, but you can say that in your life too. You know, I mean, when we remained unfaithful at times, he is always faithful. And do we have that, Russell? There you go. Let's sing this together. Great is thy faithfulness, O God.
And Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our opportunity to be in here in your house today. Lord, let us be mindful of the opportunities that you will place before us today in the upcoming week. I pray, Lord, that we will be able to minister to those in need. And again, bless all those who are sick and who are not able to be here today, given the grace and mercy that you bestow upon all of us. And Lord, we give you the glory. And it's in your name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.